We are continuing this morning in this new series we're in, looking at our emotional life as submitted to the reign of Jesus. And so I want to I give a little bit of a background as you, you can turn in your Bibles to, to Psalm 62, but really this morning we're going to be in Matthew 26. So Matthew 26, 36 to 46, but we're going to launch out of the Psalms as we're trying to do in, in this series but a little, a little bit of background is when, when these issues of talking honestly about our emotional life uh, became very evident, not just in what I was learning, but in what I needed, is I was very skeptical. And I'm sharing this because I think there could be some of you like this as well. I began to, to say things because of my background that weren't bad things. I began to wonder, like, is, is this really gospel-centered? Or is this like a distraction from the real need? Is talking about, you know, kind of having these wounds, talking about suffering, is, is, that some, is that being controlled by the world? Is this kind of leading us in a path that where we, we don't acknowledge the, the root problem of sin and the, the supreme solution of the cross and the finished work of Jesus? Uh, I, I've been influenced by some who talk about how our cult, culture is really captured in three words by what is a moralistic therapeutic deism. And so that's fancy words for saying that a lot of Christianity, basically all it is, is telling you how to live right, how to feel good, and then and, and God is kind of just this distant figure that's kind of there to serve your own personal fulfillment. And so I want to share that because what, what, I've, what I've found is I, I didn't just take all this stuff in, we're learning like hook, line, and sinker, but submitted it to the authority of the Scriptures and the Lordship of Christ. And that's what I want you guys to do as well. There may be some of these things that we talk about as we dive deep into what it means to be an emotionally healthy person. And you might think, I don't know. I just want to encourage you to take that to the Scriptures. Take that to the Lord. And I think what you'll find is what I've found is that in this, there's no diminishment of sin. There's no diminishment of the cross. But it's actually an enlargement of the power of the grace of God to meet us in the reality of where we are so that we don't have to play games, deny our feelings, or act like that they're not important and we just need to ride this thing out called life until Jesus comes back. And we're going to see that today in the person of Christ. So these first three weeks before we get to eight weeks on particular emotions, we looked last week at God the Father in our emotions, and we talked about because he's immutable, which is he's unchanging, and we talked about because he's impassable, which means that although we see him expressing himself and relating to us in ways that are analogous with our emotional life, that he's not controlled by anything outside, he's not acted upon, so you're never going to come to God and he's had a bad day and doesn't want to deal with you. You're never going to come to God and he's going to go off the handle. You're never going to come to God and find someone who is any less in His grace and His glory. And that gives us hope because we are wrecks. Like we're all messes if we're honest. But we have come to a God who can relate to us in our mess and yet who is stable. And this morning we're going to look at God the Son, Jesus, and His person and His work and how that gives us a guide to embrace our emotional life. So Psalm 62, 1 and 2, read with me, and then again we'll focus in Matthew 26. The psalmist says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther... He fell on his face, prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. 
And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect, holy, stable, unchanging glory and grace that is our anchor in the sea, the waves of our unrest of our confusion, of our complexity. Thank you, God, that you are who you are. And we pray today that you would, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth of your word. We pray that we would be discipled by Jesus even now through word as we go out to be discipled by him in everyday life, Father. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the spirit of showing you how I'm as needy as you are and to reveal a little bit of my immaturity is I went to college, one of the first people, uh, at least in my immediate family, to go to college and did pretty well, probably not as great as some of you guys do. Took some tough classes, learned some fancy languages, but there was one thing about me that is, does not look good, is my mom sent me to college with an iron. And four years later, I brought her back that iron unopened. Another thing is, as I learned in college, is that you didn't, I didn't really need sheets. All I needed was two blankets, two quilts, one to go under me and one to go over me. And what's all this stuff about having to do laundry all the time? When there's this glorious invention called Febreze. And then when you do happen to have to do laundry, it is amazing how much stuff you can cram in one load. And if you're willing to watch the washing machine shake and rattle, you can get a lot done in a small period of time. Now I'd like to say that I've grown up some, but my wife can tell you this has been a big part of her life is growing me up. I still don't completely understand why it matters if a shirt's hanging out the side of your drawer when you shut it, but evidently that's important. The reason I'm saying all this is not to just say dumb stuff about I, what I do. I could do that all day. But to reveal that how we can be so grown up in one area and yet so immature in another. I want to say that again. We can be so grown up in one area. You can parse Greek verbs. You can lead seminars and not know how to use sheets. When it comes to this issue of our emotional health and our emotional life, there are a lot of adults who look grown up in a lot of ways, but the reality is we're emotional infants. I stand guilty and accused of that in my life. I remember hearing for the first time this, this leader that was in Memphis, this church planner who, who was a big personality, and he had led and grown this church to just all the things of outward success. But through all this, he kind of had a, an emotional, kind of psychological breakdown that led him to go to a counselor. And he said that counselor told him something that was very sobering. He said, John, you may have all the success in the world. People may praise you. People may want you to come and speak at their conferences. People may want you to train their leaders. But emotionally, you're not much older than an eight-year-old boy. Another way to say this is we can have a high IQ, but a very low EQ. Now, how do you know? Well, how do you know if this might be true of you? I'm just taking things from my experience of things that were true of me. Is if this is how you respond most of the time to how are you doing? If your most response is, I'm fine or I'm okay, that is a red flag. Not all of the time, right? Sometimes we really are fine and we don't need to go fishing 
But most of the time, if you're a human being, you're not fine. Everything is not just okay. Things like this. People would say, how can I pray for you, Rusty? And I would have to sit there and think, how can they pray for me? I guess I'm good. No, I wasn't. And you know, if you're like me, you think, well, I'm answering that question in all sincerity. I just want to gently say that might even be more of a problem. Because you're so unaware. What I want to say is is that, that this is not, again, we're going to talk on these emotions about guilt and shame and fear. This is not to guilt you or shame you. It's just to tell the truth. And the church has to take a lot of responsibility when it comes to these issues. Because the reason that so many even Christians have lived like this is because the church has discipled people that that's what you're supposed to do. The church, sadly enough, of all places, has not, as we're going to see, followed the way of Jesus. And they've said, the way that we're not going to get, the way that this is going to work is we're all going to have to pretend we're okay. You know it, if you're being honest. We've been around these church cultures. I've been a part of them. I've led them. I've contributed. Lord, forgive me to just say, if we all just pretend like everything is okay, then we can be okay. There's no need to open a can of worms. There's no need to tell the truth. We have these theologies that tell us that if you're a really spiritual mature, you'll experience some type of deliverance. Where you won't have to deal with this stuff anymore. But as we're going to see today, what, what does it mean to be delivered from being like Jesus? That's not deliverance, that's demonic activity. That's not spiritual maturity. To become this person who is, who is tough, who is strong, who feels nothing, who presses on, who gets things done. That may, might be some type of American vision of life, but that is not the way of Jesus. I don't know where I got this from. I found it in, in some notes, so it's, I'm not taking credit for it, but it laid out these sort of a stages of emotional development. And, and sadly, some of these I just really resonated with in the area I wish I wasn't in. But here's the first one, emotional infant. An emotional infant says, I look for other people to take care of me emotionally and spiritually. I often have difficulty in describing and experiencing my feelings in healthy ways, and I very rarely enter into the emotional world of others. I'm con consistently driven by a need for instant gratification, often using objects or others to meet my needs. People sometimes perceive me as inconsiderate and insensitive. I am uncomfortable with silence and being alone. When trials, hardships, or difficulties come, I want to quit God and the Christian life. I sometimes experience God at church and when I'm with other Christians, but very rarely when I'm alone and very rarely when I'm at home. Then there's the emotional child. When life is going my way, I'm content. However, as soon as disappointment or stress enter the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I often take things personally. I interpret disagreements or criticisms as a personal offense. When I don't get my way, I often complain, throw an emotional tantrum, withdraw or manipulate, start to drag my feet, become sarcastic or take revenge. I often end up living off the spirituality of other people because I am so overloaded and distracted. My prayer life is primarily talking to God and telling Him what to do and telling Him how to fix my problems. Prayer is a duty, not a delight. Then the emotional adolescent. Adolescent, think all the, the teenagery things here. I don't like it when others question me. I often make quick judgments and interpretations of people's behavior. Always reading. I know there's another reason why they did that. 
I withhold forgiveness to those who sin against me, avoiding or cutting them off when they do something to hurt me. I subconsciously keep records on the love that I give out. I have trouble listening to another person's pains, disappointments, or needs without becoming preoccupied with myself. I sometimes find myself too busy to spend adequate time nourishing my spiritual life. I attend church and serve others, but I enjoy very few delights in Christ. My Christian life is still primarily about doing, not being with God. And prayer continues to be me mostly talking with little silent solitude or listening. And the, the last one, emotional adult, kind of the goal here. I respect and love others without having to change them or becoming judgmental. I value people for who they are, not for what they can give me or for how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. I can state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial. I am able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths, and weaknesses. I am deeply convinced that I am absolutely loved by God. And as a result, I don't look to other people to tell me that I'm okay. I'm able to integrate doing for God and being with Him, like Mary and Martha. My Christian life has moved beyond simply serving Christ to loving Him and enjoying communion with Him. I'd like to say the last adult one resembles me, but if I was honest, there's flickerings of all the others that you might not know, but most certainly the, my wife and children and those who live with me know. See, it's easy to serve like a boss at church, but live with people who end up being lonely or distant, who can't confront you, can't talk to you, whom you can't talk to. We're like a REM shiny happy people or sulking hurting people many people who can look strong who can sit in churches who can serve who can do things for years for decades for lifetimes will go to the grave and never really be known and when you know that you're not really known it's very hard to know that you're really loved and when you're not really known and you don't really know then if you're really loved because nobody really knows, then it's really hard to believe deep down, I really belong. It really matters. God has created you to be known, to be loved, and to belong. There's good news. It's that Jesus is not just Lord of your afterlife. So praise God that He is. Praise God one day He is going to return and because of His finished work, we who deserve nothing before God will walk into an eternal life covered in the righteousness of Christ and eternal glory. But the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus says is that that not yet reality has come to break into this present everyday experience. That Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, is not just the Lord of the external, but the internal he is the truth that comes to set us free. Free to be known, to be loved, to be longed. But we've got to have the courage. This takes courage. It takes a courage that you do not have in yourself. It takes a courage that only can come by having a Savior who has lived this perfectly for us. And who now wants to lead us in the way. And so that's what we want to see here in Matthew 26. We could go to a lot of different places. But how does Jesus lead us to embrace and engage our emotional lives? The first thing is He gives us the courage to create the space to feel. Notice again in verses 26 
uh, beginning in verse 36, that is. It says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Set here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. In Mark chapter 14, it says it this way. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then again in Luke 22, verse 41, it says it this way. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. I'm going to read all those just to give this, this full picture of how the gospel writers show this, that Jesus withdrew to be alone. Jesus already knows what's going to happen. But Jesus goes to be alone with the Father to pour out His heart to God about how He felt. Some of us, when we think about being alone with God, when we think about a devotional time, a quiet time, the first, our gut reaction is to think of, we're just going to go have this Bible study. We're just going to go complete this sort of worksheet. I know some of you, even in our fight clubs, you know, the enemy wants to take the questions that we give and stuff to like, oh, this is just something I have to get done. When the reality is, is that what God is inviting us into is a moment of communion with Him. He wants to speak to us from the truth of His Word, but the reality of a, of a powerful and meaningful communion with God is that we do not go to just read Him or read about Him, but we go to Him to let Him read us. And Jesus knew it wouldn't always be pretty. Our, our text says here, He began to be sorrowful, troubled. As Mark says, to death. I'm so sad, I feel like I'm going to die before the thing even happens. It says he fell to the ground on his face. When you think of being Christ-like, when you think of spiritual maturity, do you have a category for falling on your face because you're so overwhelmed with how you feel before God? Or do you think spiritual maturity was somehow going to be getting to the point to where that doesn't happen anymore? Jesus is not going into this garden and the beach boys are playing in the background and he's skipping through a field of clovers because he has finally experienced the peace that God wants us to have in our lives. Well, he created the space to pour out his heart before God. This is really hard for me. I hate conflict. I hate it. You know why I hate it? Because I, I know that conflict by its very nature is going to become quite emotional. I'm going to have to, to engage with the other person's emotions. I'm going to have to sit with mine. It feels very unsafe. I, did, I didn't grow up in a world and an environment where people did that. The story that's going on in my head is that the more you talk about things, the worse things get. I wish I didn't believe that, but just to be honest with you guys, that's, that's what I believe in my functional life. So when I first started doing this in my communion with God alone, and even honestly to this day, I don't think about my devotional time as boring. I'm afraid of it. Afraid. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I'm just telling you the truth. It's like, God, you're inviting me to step into this space and not just exegete a passage from Romans not just figure out the authorial intent of the psalmist, but you're inviting me to follow Jesus here and say, God, this is, this is where I am. I, don't, I, I not only not want to tell him, I don't want to tell myself a lot of times. And it's not just the emotions we may think of as negative, it's even the positive ones. It feels weak to be so happy. 
sometimes. You know, like we said last week, sometimes we, we may have grew up, and this was a voice we were hearing from the, from the other room, is quit laughing so much, you're being an idiot. But when we do this, when we come to God's Word, and now God's Word has a, a word for our lives, if you're like me, a lot of times it's like, well, I don't even remember what I read this morning. It's because we're, it's because we're, we're viewing this relationship with God like, a, like we're clocking in and clocking out. I got my time in today. I got the guilt monkey off my back. I read my Bible, did my prayer thing. But then we meet with God. It takes courage. It takes courage to do this. You can't do this if you're checking Facebook at the same time. You can't do this probably even if your phone's sitting there buzzing with notification after notification. But Jesus is wanting to take you into the garden and learn to sit with God in the reality of your life. Some of you, if you're honest, you can't go into a house without turning the TV on. I know a lot of you don't even have TVs anymore, but you can't go to the bathroom without your phone. You can't even sit and listen. And it seems so innocent, it seems so non-important, but it's the way the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're just numbing us out. Go watch Wally. A great prophetic movie. And just see if it doesn't resemble a lot of the reality that we live in. We're just drifting around in life, feeling fine. We're missing reality. It takes courage to do this, but what I can promise you is Jesus is with you. He's been there. He's going to be there. He's going to hold you. But you've got to get to where he is, where the psalmist was in Psalm 62. My soul sits before you in silence. So what's that space going to look like for you? What you need to ask yourself, what's that going to look like? Where's that going to happen? We're not here to just give you uh, some, some ideas. I'm not here to give you an inspirational speech. We want to go obey everything that Jesus commanded us to do. We want to go live like Jesus so... You, you, I can't tell you what that's going to look like for you, but I want you to, to, to ask, to, to sit, what, what is this going to look like for me to create this space to pour out my heart to God? Well, we have to go into the next part here to, to see some of what that might look like. So Jesus not only leads us to create the space to pour out our hearts to God, to listen, to feel, but he also gives us the courage, the pathway, the example to understand, to name, and to open up about it. In verse 38, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So we've mentioned this already, but what's important is we see that Jesus is, is very clearly naming, bringing out into the open, into words. And again, I'm not trying to get into that kooky stuff where if you say it, it becomes real or whatever. But there is a power in like saying something out loud and naming something, and telling the truth about it. And some of you, if you're honest, like this is not a normal part of your life. Again, this is something I wrestle with. But we notice here is Jesus was not embarrassed about how he felt. I wouldn't want anybody to know that I'm sorrowful. No, what do we see here? He, he's not even just saying this to God. It says, notice verse 38, he said to them... wasn't weakness. He's not ignoring how he felt. I just, I just need to go get something to eat right now. I just need to watch Netflix. I, I just need to take this drug. This is just too much. I'm so sad. I'm about to die. I got to find some way to numb this away. He was honest with himself and with them. He didn't say, ah, oh, you guys can't understand this. I mean, if anybody could have said it in this moment, Jesus could have said, that's too much for y'all to handle. I don't want to be a burden on you. No, he called it like it was. He told how he felt. 
and he's leading us in the way. I've had several friends who've committed suicide. And it's so hard. And it's so nuanced and every situation is different. So I dare not speak in a blanket statement. But there was a note that one man left when he committed suicide. And it left his family, his friends, and his community in shock. Because the note he wrote described a world of emotions that were as surprising as the death. Someone commented on this and said, in such situations, the conclusion is, I'd rather die alone than let people know how I feel and face what that might mean. I'd rather die alone than let people know what I really feel and face what that might mean. that's you today, Jesus is calling for you. Tell the truth to somebody. Tell the truth to him. You're not weak. Well, you are weak. There's nothing unchristlike about telling the truth. There's actual suicide, but I want to prose there's also living suicide. Is that you don't take your life, that you don't live your life, because you refuse to feel the feeling and to tell the truth about it. For some, it's a comfort idol that refuses the work that's going to have to be done, because you're right. If you think, well, if I say this and I get that off my chest and then move on, you're right. That ain't the way. It's going to take sacrifice, it's going to hurt, it's going to cost. For some, it's an approval idol that fears the judgment of others. What will they think of me? Will they reject me? As some of you I know are least students, you're going into ministry. And when you're in ministry, it's really, really scary, right? Because if, if I share how I feel, it's not like I'm the mailman and they're like, whoa, okay, don't go shoot everybody up. But it's like, no, if I share how I feel, I lose my job and can't provide for my family. If you're in an unhealthy culture, which sadly many are. Maybe it's a performance idol. You look so good. I mean, you're top of your class. You're the best at work. You're the smartest person around. And what will people think if they know how ashamed I am deep down in myself? For others, it's a control idol. It's because you know once you put this on the table and you're not just transparent by telling what's happened, but you're vulnerable by telling how you feel and how it's affecting relationships, now I lose control. Now other people are speaking into this. And it scares you to death. But whatever idol that is keeping you from following the way of Jesus, they are offering you a phony and false freedom that will never give you the fulfillment your heart longs for. Your life will, be, will just continue to be overgrown by the weeds and thorns of the world. And we contrast this with the life of Jesus. We, we don't have time, but go read all the Gospels. Just, just read them in light of this. And watch Jesus. He cries. Jesus weeps. He weeps over Lazarus' death and he knows he's about to bring the guy back to life. I mean, can you just imagine if there was ever a time to just say, put on a smile. We're not going to call this a funeral. We're calling it a celebration. You know, no grief. Don't make everybody feel com uncomfortable. And Jesus is over there weeping. Because death is horrible. Even if the guy's about to be risen from the dead. He's filled with joy. He turns water into wine. He's in Luke 10, 21. He rejoices. He's grieved. He's angry. He's irritated. We even see this a little bit in this text. Like, 
Come on, guys. You don't have to stay awake with me right now. I'm pouring out my heart to you. And you can't stay awake? He gets frustrated. He's holy. He's without sin. But in his human nature, he experiences these things that we experience. And he shows us the way. It seems even in our text, he, he experiences to some degree a loneliness, hurt. But again, many of us think the most spiritual people we know are the most laid back, stonewalled and calm. Maybe. Maybe that's the peace of Christ. We want it, and in many times it is, but not always. It's like the couple I talked to once in a church said, me and my wife have never had a fight. Yeah, right. You might never punched each other. You had a fight. That's that type of junk that gets thrown around in churches, and we wonder why the world doesn't want to be here hearing what we have to say. That's not Jesus. If that's you here today, or you watching, and you think, I got to fake how I feel, and I got to get it together, be a big boy or a big girl if I'm going to join this. That's not the words of Jesus, it's not the way of Jesus. Mature discipleship is not learning how to fake. It's actually learning how to feel. And to feel how Jesus felt. Christianity is not wanting to become some kind of Zen master. It's not about detachment. It's not about denial. It's not about distraction. It's about the abiding life of a Savior who meets you where you are and gives you hope to carry on. If you haven't got one yet, last week we had them on the seats. But we have our, our feelings card taken from 10-man ministries. You could look them up. If you hadn't got one, there's some more back there at the table. Daniel can help you get one. He's sitting back there. I'll probably say this almost every week, unapologetically. Some of you just need to, you got to get these muscles going. You're just going to have to take this out for the Lord and just name the ones you're feeling. You just got to do it. All right, God, right now I feel anger, I feel shame, and I feel glad. And you might not can do much more than that to start with, but that's a start in the way of Christ. This is how I feel. And then if you want to, you can talk to God about that. You can do what Jesus did. My soul is sorrowful. You can tell God about it. He's your Father. He loves you. He doesn't want you to pretend. There's nothing that honors a good father more than when their children pour their heart out to him. And however you've experienced a father's response or a love or to how you feel, your Father in heaven, your good Father, wants you to come and lay it all out. It leads us to the next thing we see in our text. It's not just the courage to to create the space to do this, the courage to, to name it and own it, but Jesus then has the courage to take it to God and submit it to Him. So we're, you're coming to God as God, and there's a submission. We see this in verse 39. It says, And going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but You will. So our emotional lives are, are not sovereign, God is sovereign. So we come to God in honesty. We come to God in reality. But just like we talked about last week, we come to God as our stability. He is God, not our emotions. He is God, not us. He is God, not our circumstances. And we can trust Him as King because He calls us from this place of vulnerability and reality. Jesus falls on his face before the Father in unashamed honesty. He prays in agony and earnestly with a physicality that honestly would make many of us very nervous. He's casting his cares upon the Father. And he's submitting it to him. He's showing us the way again. Here you go, God. Here's my heart. Your will be done. Your will be done. 
Every one of us is going to sum God with our heart. It's not if you do this, it's how you do this. Every person in this world has a heart that is emotional. It's the nature of being human. It's, it's read the Psalms again. Everybody's going somewhere with their emotions. The reason that maybe some of you and many in our culture are addicted to pornography is not primarily because you have this out-of-control lust that's just about physicality. It's because you're wanting to numb something. You're wanting to escape. It's the same with alcohol abuse. It's the same with things that we would think that are less maybe functionally debilitating. Some of you it's music. Some of you it's success. Others it's your image. But you're like, I'm going to take my emotions that I don't know how to deal with or I don't want to do, deal with to this thing, this person, this place, and I'm going to let them comfort me. I'm going to trust them with my heart right now. And they will make you feel better while making the problem worse. It's because we don't trust the Father like we see Jesus trusting Him here. It's like the times we've heard people pray in King James English. You know, they're, they're talking to you with uh, maybe a redneck ac accent even worse than mine if that's possible. And then all of a sudden you call on them and pray and it's like, Oh, Holy Father, Thou art great in the highest heavens. I prayest that Thou come down and rend the, and all this stuff. And you're like, what? Who is that? Jesus didn't become a different person in prayer. Can you imagine your child coming to you and speaking with a British accent? Because he thinks that's what he needs to do to let you really know he's serious. And you're just like, what in the world? Who are you before God? Those who would enter the kingdom of heaven must become like a child. When's the last time you cried out your song? When's the last time you went to Him instead of to that substance or that source? You said, I'm going to trust you, God, even though it's confusing, even though it's conflicting. I'm going to trust you enough to ask you, why do I feel this way? What am I feeling? I'm going to trust you enough to believe that your word will give me good news, will give me truth that will set me free. I'm going to trust that your word is truth. I'm going to trust that you are God. I'm going to trust that you want to give me hope. And I'm going to trust that whatever you call me to in repentance and faith, it's not to hurt me, but to help me. And I'm going to trust you like Jesus does, as we see in this text, even if it feels like the only response I'm getting is silence. I'm going to trust that the appearance of silence is not the lack of your faithfulness. So the last thing we see that Jesus gives us the courage to do is to move forward in reality. So Jesus doesn't go and have this really deep, meaningful time with God, with the Father, pouring out His heart as He's going to the cross, and then now He just kind of gets up, you know, gets the dust off His shoulder, and, and just moves on, and like, everything's okay. No, he, he has the courage now to step back into reality. Does prayer tie a nice, neat bow around life? No. It's not what God's promising you. He's promising you His presence. He's promising you the keeping of His promises. He's promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's promising that the way of escape is the way often of endurance. Do His friends really get it? We need friends who get it. James says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. But not everybody always gets it. They certainly didn't get it, but he moves on. The betrayer is at hand, verse 46 says. 
And He walks this path of honesty before the Father, of showing us the way to be the, the real people that we really are as He goes to the cross. And when Jesus goes to the cross, it's not like He's compartmentalized. Well, I did that whole prayer thing, and now I'm going to go do this cross thing. But as He hangs on the cross, He cries out the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? then he can turn and pray with equal confidence. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He is neither stoic nor psychotic. He is neither fake nor overwhelmed. He is neither running from his emotions nor ruled by his emotions. And we're all those things. But the good news is that he perfectly lived this in our place. That what we have here in Jesus is not just an example, however great it may be, but we have a substitute. We have an anchor. We have what we've read in Hebrews 4 already, that He was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. He goes to the cross for us who are stoic and act like we have it together and others of us who are psychotic and lose it and go crazy. He's enough for both of you. He's enough for those of us who might be one or the other on any given day. You don't know what's next. The gospel is you're not justified by your emotional health. You're justified by the finished work of Christ. This is really good news. This is not some new form of works righteousness. This is the way of Jesus rooted in the work of Jesus. Jesus is praying here in the garden. The primary point of this text is not to give us this just example of what it means like to go before the Father so it's here. The primary point of this text is that Jesus says this world is jacked up. Sin has ruined everything. And, and it ought to be worse if it wasn't for God's grace. And it's all going to go to hell. But I'll drink the cup. I'll drink the cup of justice for the sin and evil of the world. I will take on the curse that clouds all our souls and relationships. I will take on the root of our emotional unrest so that we can be brought into the eternal rest of God. My friend Robert, that many of you in our missional community know, he's been teaching me some about detox from addiction. We were talking the other day, and he was explaining to me about the experience for him, and you know, he had to lock himself in a room, and he was saying the, the physical part of withdrawal is, is excruciating. Because your body's dependent on these chemicals to live. And as you come out of addiction, you, you actually feel like you're going to die. But he said, as bad as that is, the emotional part's worse. He says, because if you're like me, you spent not just years, but decades addicted to things so that you didn't have to feel anything. You didn't have to feel that abuse you faced as a child. You didn't have to feel that abandonment by those who should have protected you. You didn't have to feel all the consequences of how you responded sinfully in your life to deal with that and all the people that were hurt. Decades of suppressed emotions. And now you're just going to let them go wild? That's scary. And you guys in here may not be addicted to meth, cocaine, heroin, pills. You might be addicted to something else that's kept you from telling the truth about how you feel. And that's a weight too big for any of us to bear. But the good news is, is we have one who can bear it. We have one who can bear it. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So now, what are we going to do with all this? Let us draw with confidence near to the throne of grace so that we can get told, I told you so, so that we can get condemned and beat down. No, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus. We thank you that though the weight of our reality is so heavy that he has already taken on the root and given us redemption. And we pray now, Father, that as we come to the table that you would remind us that it is finished. We pray that we would come for repentance, for healing, for deliverance, not in our own strength, but in his, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, each week, we respond to God's word by coming to the Lord's table. If you're a follower of Jesus, we ask you to take the bread and the cup, but if not, you can still circle up with us and share and hear the good news. If you're unreconciled with a fellow follower of Jesus, we ask that you would reflect on that and ask where Jesus might lead you into paths of reconciliation this week. If you're at peace with a sinful action or desire in your life, we pray that right now would be the time where you come to God and you say, forgive me. But there may be more that you need to share. We know that Jesus comes in his ministry and through his finished work that we see in the bread and the cup to give us forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. So if you'd close your eyes right now, we'll take just a moment to reflect before we come to the table. Ask now of God to bring to mind maybe some idols you need to confess that are keeping you from living in the truth that sets you free. And if someone at your table shares this, those around you, we pray, would, would remind you of the forgiveness you have in Christ. Next, what wounds do you need to bring to the table? What hurts? As someone shares, I would just encourage those who are leading at the table to make sure that you take the time just to go ahead and pause and pray specifically that God would bring healing in these areas. And lastly, what lies do I need to bring to the table? It's only the truth of God's word that sets us free. So as people may share these lies, I encourage others to share the truth of Scripture and to pray for deliverance from the blindedness that the enemy brings. I'd also like to say that if, if you are here and you're new, you can come up front to, to this area where I will be. If you have a particular, particular thing that's heavy on your heart right now, really heavy, you're certainly free to share that at any of the tables. But if, because maybe you feel some degree of comfort with me because I've been the one standing up here, I'll be up here to, to listen to you and to pray for you. And if we need more time to set up a time to do that afterwards. So at this time, let us go to the Lord's table. If you're new, uh, just follow, follow a group.